Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. You know, you get mad about one thing and you go to the other, and then when you go to the other and you say, I used to go to this church, and you walk up to people in the church like, oh, I've heard about that place. Heard that pastor has tattoos, right? Like, oh yeah, I know they've got that one person who's ridiculous. Like, I can't believe anyone goes there. And what I found in that is that that church life is just weird. It's, it's just weird. It's weird to be a part of a church. It's weird to be around other adults when you're like, no, it's okay to come to my house and cry about things. Like, that's not a normal thing that we have in life today. Um, but what I've always found so frustrating and, and probably the hardest thing about church life is this competition that occurs in churches, right? Where like even in the things like social media and YouTube views, like we compare ourselves to each other and we say things like, I think it's a little loud, Marcus. Can you turn me down just a little bit? Sorry. Um, and and we, we we let people talk about each other and pastors talk about each other and church members get mad at each other. And I'm thinking, man, we sound to everyone else, to all the people who are considering going to church or who aren't Christians or who haven't gone to church in a while, we sound like what I imagine it looks like to be in the NFL scrum where you see a fumble happen and then you see two or three players from the same team punch each other trying to get the ball right? That's how, that's how like that mentality kind of strikes me. Or, you know, I'm a sports guy, so I use sports stuff all the time, but you see two guys fighting for the same rebound and you're like, they end up throwing the ball out of bounds. And then the rest of the team's mad at them because they fought over something they didn't need to fight over. And, and I see that in church all the time. And listen, admittedly, I, I've lost myself in that before. Like, I, I'm not going to say that I haven't, that I haven't fought those, some of the same battles and that doesn't feel good. Uh, to the depravity of our souls when people like us more than someone else who can fulfill the same need. It's competition. It's a problem. Um, and, and admittedly, it's, it's easier or it's easy to desire to be better. Um, but this idea of things that are inconsequential, um, you know, the problem is that, that that's not just a church thing that I've seen. Because what we do is we see other people's perceived successes, and you measure them with how you're doing, right? Or your vacation compared to their vacation, or your car compared to their car, which I know, I drive a Jeep Wrangler, like, I, I get it, guys, you'll just have to take second place. But, um, <laughs> but, but we, we do this thing where we, we compare perceived successes of others, and then the deepest part of what we know, and then we get angry at people about them right? We fight with them in our own selves, and we, we don't actually allow ourselves to grow because we're so focused on them being less than us. And that comes out of our own weakness, our own shortcoming, our own fear. And what we've allowed is we've allowed that kind of ideal to come into the culture of church. And then what happens is when all those people come together, and we don't actually put the gospel in the middle of that and let it fight through, we have this culture where we're always comparing and always fighting and always being disappointed with each other and competing. And then, you know, we get mad about green carpet versus red or one song versus another. And what I'm finding is that, like I said, it's not just a church thing, it's an everybody thing. And what I found as we dive into John 3 today is that it's not even just 
a now thing. It's kind of an always has been thing. In fact, I did some studying on Google, which I know makes me very fancy. But I was looking through some stuff about how jealousy has interacted with our culture today. Like what's actually happening, if we're getting better or we're getting worse. And here's what I found. Um, I found a study that actually came out about a year and a half ago. Um, and it said that the problem of jealousy that we have is actually growing. So of adults who are 50 years and older, 70% say that they regularly deal with jealousy. 70%. Now, everyone in here who's younger than 50, we're patting ourselves on the back. We're like, God, can you believe those geezers? Unbelievable. 70%. I got news for you. 35 and under, guess what? 83%. 83%. So in 15 years, a little less than one generation, we're talking about 13% of people now deal with these issues like jealousy on a greater capacity than we did the generation before them. It's getting worse. Imagine you have a group of 100 people, and there's only 17 who are like, ah, I don't really deal with I'm not jealous of anybody. Right? Then the other 83 are like, well, yeah, because you have $6 million in your bank account and your own business, right? You get to sleep. Your kids are awesome. That's what, that's what our heads do. That's what our hearts do. They're driven to that. And when I was thinking about this, what I'm finding is that we're, we're quickly becoming this culture of people who are, who are less happy and more jealous because like those two things can exist, but, but that happens because we have this greater acceptance of selfishness now. And that's what drives this in us, is this greater acceptance that you are just supposed to do what takes care of you and, and forget everybody else. Right? Like, I'm going to do what makes me happy, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. You guys seen that in culture today? Hello. And then people are, are discovering that, and, they're, and we're walking in, we're living in that freedom. And then we find that it's not fulfilling. And then we get angry and jealous. It's amazing that for a culture of people who are so much more free in what we want to do and who we think we are and what we want to be about, that we're, more, we're becoming more jealous of other people in the midst of that. Do you guys catch that, what, what I'm putting down here? It should be the opposite. It should be if we say, hey, these are the things that I like, and I'm going to do what I want to do, that people should go, okay, that's fine. You do you. I'm going to do what makes me happy. But, but instead, what we're seeing is this trend toward people being more upset, more disappointed, more jealous, more angry, and more strife. And then we're wondering why the world is falling apart around us. It's not a moralistic statement. It's a when we strive for only ourselves and live selfishly, we are going to be more disappointed. It's a statistic statement. It's, it's factual. I don't think I'm making a weird parallel there. All, all, it's continue, all this has continued to prove is that when we do what we want, when we seek self-gratification, it's still unfulfilling. And I would even venture to say it's even more than that. It's actually more damaging. We're not getting better. We're getting worse. And what, what I think I want to find out for us today is, is why is it that when we're more inward focused to ourselves, we become less happy? As, as we seek to do what we want, why is it why is it made us less of who we want to be? Well, I think we're going to see in John 3 
the answer to that. But what happens, I think, while we become so miserably jealous, I think it's four quick things I want to tell you. The first is that we we failed to remember our purpose and our calling and our identity. Think about it this way. When you look at your own life, and when you look at someone else that you're comparing yourself to, and you're jealous and angry of them, well, all that does is take it off of you and what you are supposed to be doing in the first place. I, I can't be jealous of my, my younger brother is about to have an awesome step in his life. He's opening a State Farm office, and he's like achieving this incredible career goal of his. And, and if I were to sit back and be jealous of him and what he's done, that would only be able to happen if I forgot that I was called here instead of there. And the same is the other way around, right? The same is the other way. And we do it all the time because we've forgotten what our purpose and our calling actually is. And so we get mad at other people when they are getting the happiness we think we're supposed to have. Or it also comes from a poor self-image. What I've learned is when we view other people as less than us, as not as important, our typical response is just to tear them down so we can feel better. That makes us feel more valid. Again, it speaks to what we think is this identity of strength and confidence, but all it actually is is self-image issues and identity problems. Or maybe, maybe it's a fear of failure. Or comparison. So the question today is, how can we biblically solve this problem that is destroying our culture? If if 83% of people in one generation, if it's gone up 13%, what is to happen for our children? How do we fix this before our kids, my, my young children grow up and they're even less happier than I am? How do we how do we fix this? Well, I think. I think we can learn a lot from John 3 today. We're going to start in verse 22. Because what we need to do is see what godly men and women do in Scripture to answer this conundrum. And so you can actually, uh, if you have the app, you're looking for notes. I forgot to say this, but if you click more on the bottom right there, you'll see another button that says notes. You can click that and you can follow along with our sermon notes this morning. But I want to set the scene while you turn to John 3, starting in verse 22. Here's what's happened. Jesus' ministry has begun. He's um, called his first disciples. He had his first miracle at the wedding at Cana we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's uh, flipped some tables, which is a pretty fun one, but I missed it because I know that I would have wanted to flip a table and hurt some people if I did that. That wouldn't have gone well for us. He meets Nicodemus like we talked about last week, and now he finally just wants to get away. You guys ever been there where you're like, I'm so tired. I just want to be alone all by myself for the next six weeks. Anybody been there before? Yeah. Yep. I need a break. And this is what happens. So Jesus is now hanging out with his disciples. He's gotten away and baptizing. In verse 22, this is what uh, the word of the Lord says. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also, John the Baptist, not John the author, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And it says, for John had not yet been put in prison. So, so here's the scene. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. They're baptizing people. And because there's this huge body of water, you also see John the Baptist with his disciples baptizing people. 
So they're in this same area. They can see each other across the way, right? Like competition is forming. This is kind of what QT and Sphinx are doing right now, right? Looking across the way, like you think your ice cream is delicious, which it is, by the way. QT, I haven't had Sphinx yet. But Sphinx chicken. Anyways, I'm going to get, I'm way off. Yeah, yeah. Some of y'all are like, I'm going immediately after this, getting some traditional fried chicken tenders. Um, so they're at this place where they're staring across the water at each other, right? Doing the same thing, baptizing in the same name for the same purpose. John the Baptist has been doing this forever. And now Jesus is doing it with his disciples. And, and here's the response that we see of John the Baptist's disciples in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they're already arguing, go figure, religious people, right? <clears throat> the religious people are arguing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, <coughs> excuse me, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. Hello, church world today, right? So John, John's hanging out doing his thing, exactly what he's called to, fulfilling his purpose. And John's little religious buddies who are with him are going to go, we got to tell him what's going on here. So they gather together, they go to John, like, hey, that guy that you told us was coming, he's baptizing. Everybody's going there now. What, what are we going to do about this, John? We need to go wreck some Jesus and then baptize in his name, right? But that's what's happening here. That's what's happening. It's crazy to me. They even say, he who you bore witness. In the first chapter of John, this is what John the Baptist says about Jesus. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know, and even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So here's John the Baptist earlier saying, hey, there's this other one coming, and I shouldn't even touch the dirtiest part of him, his shoes. I, I, I'm not even worthy to mess with the dirt on his sandal. That's who John says. And then the religious people that are hanging out with John come to him like, hey, that guy that you talked about, the sandal untying thing, he's over there, and everybody's going there now. What are we going to do? Guys, this is a life, an existence-long historical issue where we say, why are they going there instead of here? Why do they like him better than us? What are we doing wrong? And, and John gives this amazing reply. This incredible statement, because here's the problem. John understands that he has to let go of comparison. He, he, he knows, he gets it. It's our first point today, is, is that there's power in letting go of comparison. Here's what John doesn't see Jesus as, a threat. Like John doesn't see Jesus as a threat to John's ministry. Pretty straightforward. What would happen if we stopped seeing people as threats to us? What, what would that look like? What would it look like for you not to be threatened by other people? Because they're better, perceivedly better than you. See, here's what John's disciples show. They show the natural proclivity of man, which is to remove the threat. Immediately, right? Address the threat, remove the threat. Fight or flight. 
People who don't address and remove threats, what do we call them? It's okay, it's church, you can talk. Cowards. Yeah. Built into the wiring of who you are is either to fight or to run. That's it. But either one of those responses is built for you to go and remove the threat that you see. And so John's disciples come to him, and they want John to remove the threat that is Jesus because they're losing people to him. It's built in us. But here's John's beautiful response and why he understands that the important thing to do is to let go of that comparison. In verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Hello. What would that do? I, I'm, we're going to keep going, but what would that do to us if we were able to say that? Hey, look what that guy has. We're like, you know what? Like, the Lord is overall provision. Like whatever he has, it's because God has given that to him. For better or for worse, it's for God's glory. Whatever he has is because God said to. What would that do for conversations that we have? What would, well, I'm, well, I'll just say it. What would that do for political arguments that we have every day? Like, what if our response wasn't to fight for a political candidate? What if our response was to fight for the gospel and be like, hey, look, the Lord, the Lord didn't screw up. Like, he didn't slip and go, oh, well, now this is going to happen. He's, what if we said he's still in control no matter who sits in an office? <clears throat> but John understands that. His immediate response, a person cannot receive one, even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Here's what, uh, John is looking at these guys. He's like, y'all, I don't understand how to make this more clear. It's exactly what I said. I said, I'm coming and then there's going to be one greater than me who comes. And when he comes, we are going to celebrate. I went to, a, I went to a wedding a couple weeks ago of um, two of my old students, and I was in student ministry. Actually, interestingly enough, the, the groom is actually now taking my old position, which is really cool to see. And there were a ton of people. It was this huge downtown wedding. It was full of people. And you could see as everyone knew the time was coming, as everyone knew like it was almost time for the bride to enter, you can kind of feel that excitement, right? And people are trying to catch up, but they also don't want to miss the moment when the doors are going to open, and you kind of feel this electricity. And then here the doors pop open, and this beautiful young girl comes out ready to meet her groom. And what happens? Everyone stands. The attention fully goes to her, and there's no one in there who cares for anything different. And that is exactly what John is saying here. Like, don't, don't miss that. John says, listen, I know, I told you, I'm coming. I'm coming before Jesus comes. And when he comes, I'm going to be flipping out because I'm so excited. Like, Jesus is now here to redeem his bride, to come in and to take part of everything we've been waiting for and the promises we've been waiting for. And when that happens, I'm going to be excited and you should too. John doesn't say, you know what, you're right. Let's go grab those people. And anyone who's want to come, we'll drown them in the river. Be like, hope the baptismal works. Right? But that's what we do. Guys, we do that all the time. Every day we do that. Churches do that. People in churches do that. It's why we're so broken. 
and messed up and why sometimes we'd rather sit in bed than come and be a part of gathering and congregating and knowing more about Jesus or being a part of community. Because it's easy to sit in those moments of jealousy and anger and frustration instead of doing what John does and say, listen, I told you this was coming and now that he's here, I'm excited too. Of course. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Let me tell you, when those doors open up, and the bride begins to walk to be received by her husband, you can always hear the audible gasp. The electricity that goes through. If not, you probably shouldn't be at that wedding. <laughs> if she walks in, you're like, well, here we go. You probably shouldn't be at that wedding. Because speeches are coming, and it's about to go down. Right? But when it's the right thing, when it's the promise, when it's something that is blessed, that is purposed, when the doors open and the bride walks, an audible gasp comes because we are held breathless by the beauty of what is about to occur. And then you know what the other thing is everyone does? And you, you know you do it, so don't even lie to me, okay? We're just going to be honest about this. You look at the bride, you're like, wow, she's gorgeous. And then everybody's like, I want to see if he's crying, right? Y'all all do it. Let's just be honest. Nobody just stares at the bride. She's like, I will see what his response is as she gets there. No, like you look here, you're like, she's awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's crying. Because then when you see him later, you're like, dude, <laughs> you wuss. I cried. It's cool. Because there's as much joy in the receiving and the watching the reception happen when there's no comparison to get in the way. So. John continues. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. And I must decrease. Now, this joy of mine is complete. John says, like, now I'm good now. And notice just after this, John the Baptist is going to get arrested, thrown in jail. And then in order to make a king's daughter happy, have his head cut off and presented to the king. Do you know why that's okay with John the Baptist? Because he knows that Jesus the Messiah has come, and that if someone takes his life, he's going to be with the king in eternity, and that's okay by him. Because the bridegroom has been received, and his hope is fulfilled. See, here's what John understands, that to become what he's called to become, he had to let go of what he currently was. And so for us, to become what you are called to become, you have to let go of who you currently are. If you want to do things differently, you can't do things the same way as you always have. If you want to be better, we, we come to church, we talk about being more loved, more liked, more like Jesus, and we have to let go of being who we are like, which is ourselves. But it's hard. And so John's correction is not what his disciples anticipate. It's not his, see, our normal proclivity would be to get angry, get even, eliminate the threat, right? But his isn't that at all. Instead of controlling, John instead trusts. So instead of rather holding on and controlling his role as the baptizer, he instead trusts Jesus' lordship over him. And he says, 
My joy is complete. I must become less as he becomes more. Because here's what else happens when we don't let go of comparison. When we instead compare ourselves to others, we end up chasing other people's calling. And, and guys, what I've learned is when you are wrought with comparison and when you are chasing other people's callings and purpose, all it does is leave you with unrelenting pain. And I'm, I mean to use that heavy of language there, okay? I, I, that's, that is purposeful. I'm not trying to be intense. When you are, from the moment you're awake until you finally fall asleep, thinking about how everyone else or she or he is better than you, you will live in unrelenting pain because the deepest part of you feels unfulfilled, feels not purposeful, not important. And so we wonder why depression and anxiety are destroying us, why jealousy is growing. It's because we are living every single moment thinking that someone else is better, which means they're more loved, which means they're more important. And instead of chasing after Jesus, we're chasing after what they have joy in, thinking it's going to give us what we have joy in, and those things will never equate, ever. You want to know how I know that's true? My wife loves Chopped. Right? Her favorite show. If she goes, she goes to bed pretty early normally. I'm a night owl. I'll come in the room. Chopped is on. The first thing I do is take that terrible television program off of my television. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. It's not fun for me. I like to eat. It just makes me hungry. Right? I think my wife watches it because she'll be like, man, one day I'm going to eat that. And I think, I'm going to go eat a pie right now. Like, that's, that's the willpower that I have. I can't wait to get it off my television screen. But in two months when football starts, amen and amen, the Lord's love is true. Man, Saturday mornings, 11 o'clock, I'm watching college game day. Then I'm football from like noon until what, hon, like midnight, <laughs> right? Then it's church, and then NFL the next day. Like, I, I love it. And my wife walks in, and she's like, okay, the Browns are on. I'm going to go do anything else, right? And that's fine, because what brings me joy isn't what brings her joy. Yet, we live in a world in a way that would tell people, like, in order for her to see my joy and how much I love it when Cleveland wins, which happens every now and then, um, like, for me to get that moment, if we lived that same way, it would mean that my wife would need to pursue everything Browns, going to games, living, giving everything she has to that because she wants that joy. Does that sound ridiculous to anybody else, hon? Yeah? Of course it does. So then, so then why do we do that with everything else in our life and expect the same outcome? Hmm. See, John knows what's up. And it's not anything new. Even in Malachi 3, this is what the prophet Malachi says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Interesting, they're at the river. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. See, John already knows. John understands. For him to have joy complete would not be for more people to leave Jesus' baptismal, come to his, be like, yo, check it out, Messiah. Look at everybody who's over here with me. Like, that wouldn't make his joy. That's not what he came for. He knows his role and purpose is to prepare the way. So when he sees the way been prepared and the promise comes, 
he can take joy in what he's not doing, which is not baptizing as many people because they're running to the true hope and savior of the world. There's joy in that because he's doing what he was supposed to do. Not jealousy in that. Because John understands. So verse 31 comes. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, like him, and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. The second thing I want us to go home with today is this, that he is greater than all things, including that which steals our joy. I'm going to say that again. He is greater than all things, including that which steals our joy. See, church, here's what we need to learn. If we want to make a difference, if we want to change the city, if we want to have an effect, we do stuff like parents side out and community groups and all these things that we're trying to accomplish. If we want to actually do that, then we have to be willing to know that Jesus is already ahead of us, leading the way, and wants to change culture with it. Like, we can fight and push and, and have willpower and try to will things into existence, but without Jesus being there and going ahead of us, it's, it's purposeless. It's useless. We're literally spinning our tires. And that's how we live every day. Listen, your, your struggles, your jealousies, your anxieties, your comparisons, your shortcomings, your attempt to fix things. Anybody out there a fixer? Yeah. All the men are like, not me. And all the wives are like, yes, you are. Right? Yeah. Because I came home from work and told you about Tanya, and you wanted to go punch her in the face. So you are a fixer. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe uh, your struggle with your, watching your children struggle. I know that's me. Or marital strife. Or financial hardship. Or your doubt. Or your anger. Or someone who you love not meeting the expectation, and so you just want to fight them. I, I get all those things. But Jesus is better than those things. He came to deliver from those things. And here's why that matters, because none of those things can stand in the place of Jesus. Like your anxieties can't survive in the place of Jesus. Your struggles, your frustrations, because what does John say? Everything comes from him. Everything you have comes from him. So financial stuff comes from him. I'm talking about Verizon Wireless. Hey, man, I'm just waiting on the Lord to give me what I need. It, it all comes from him. Your comparison issues come, like the, the, the hope comes from him, not yourself. Your marital strife, the hope comes from him. But all of these things, guys, all of these things pop up when we forget our call and our purpose and we allow those to replace the lordship of Jesus in our life. Verse 20, 32, sorry, and 33 says, he bears witness to what he's seen and heard. He's talking about John talking about Jesus. Yet no one receives his testimony. For whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And the third and final thing today is that we learn that Jesus' promise for you is born from his observance of eternity, not a theory of it. I get this battle a lot. I actually had this conversation yesterday or two days ago. Two days ago. I was hanging out with my friend Kevin and some other guys. We were talking about the Lord's favorite city, which is Cleveland, Ohio. 
Yeah. And he was like, that place isn't that great. And I'm like, that place is awesome. You need to go. And he goes, well, I saw this video once, this tourism video where this horrible person from Pittsburgh made a video about how bad Cleveland was. It was biased. I was not a fan of it. And I said, dude, listen, if you haven't experienced it, you, you can't hate on it. I have a rule in my life where uh, things I don't like, I try once a year, right? So like cucumbers, still terrible, awful. But, but I don't want to hate on something that I don't know, right? Fair. I've come to love tomatoes that way. But, but in all seriousness, here, here's the difference of what John says. John says, listen, like, I must become less so he can become more because what he's speaking of, the things he's baptizing people into, are not because he thinks they exist. It's because he lived them and experienced them as God. It's not a theory. It is a fact. He's been there. He attests to what he has seen and observed in eternity. Not a theory of it. Listen, we sit in chairs because we know that when we sit down, it's going to hold us up, right? Or we're going to be very sad when we get off the floor. One of those two things is going to happen. We trust. We've experienced it. We've observed it. We don't, I don't have to argue with you about whether chairs exist and work. Because we've all sat in them. In the same way, that's what John is saying. Like, listen, what Jesus says, what he's come to do, what he's baptizing you into is not a theory of what should work. It is an observance of what he has already experienced and knows. Because, well, you know, he created it. As Genesis says, all things were created through him. He attests to what he's seen because Jesus already knows that what is to come is greater than what you and I and John and all of his disciples are currently experiencing. But guys, when jealousy and fear take root, when we, when we lose the understanding of the temporary nature of sin and depravity and pain and hurt and doubt and fear, when we forget that those are temporary, our whole lives change and we are wrought with anxiety and jealousy. Think about it. If John the Baptist compared his abilities to Jesus, what would happen? Wouldn't go so well. So then why, when we have a Savior of the world who says that you're his beloved and cared for, that he died and purposed your life to be a part of his kingdom, why, when we doubt that, do we fear about not being good enough for him? Because we've forgotten you cannot arrive at your purpose trying to fulfill someone else's. And in that, the only way to take that step is you have to forgive yourself for the shortcomings that have stolen your joy. You have to trust, we have to trust that Jesus, who knows how it all ends, is good and has promised he will not leave you hanging in the balance because he is incapable of doing so. Not because he just doesn't want to, but because it is not in his character to leave you hanging. Church, that is worth hoping in. You want to talk about Jesus God of the impossible, the impossible thing is that God gave you a call and a purpose and that he is holding you in his hand. And that the moment we forget it, 
is the moment we forget who he is. So church, my encouragement to all of us today is to not forget that. To not fall apart in that, but to trust it and to know that he is greater and that he must increase and we must decrease because you can't also lead the way when you're trying to get in front of Jesus. And we're not going to do that here. Let me pray. Father, you are wonderful and perfect. You are loving. Lord, you look at your creation. You look at us and you tell us that we are worthy of your love when we're not. Lord, you call us to purpose because you want us to have joy and community and to experience love. And, and Father, I thank you for that. And so I, I just pray this morning, Lord, that we would take time, even the next couple minutes, the last few minutes we have here, that we would take time to rid ourselves of that joy, of that, excuse me, that anxiety and that comparison and that fear that has riddled our hearts. God, that we wouldn't look around and see people who we're competing with, who we're fighting against, but we would see people who need your knowledge, your goodness and your knowledge of your truth and who you are and what you've done. And that would drive us to love rather than to compare and tear down. So Jesus, help us to do that today. Lord, be with us. Encourage our hearts. Change them and mold them to your your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.